When somebody walks in the door, seemingly carrying a bag of money trying to find a home for it, we need to sit down, take a big deep breath and just find out what is the patient's expectations? Can I satisfy those expectations? Are they realistic expectations? Do I have the clinical skills to deliver that? Welcome back to the Dental Head Start podcast. My name's Erica Huynh and for this week's feature, we are joined by Dr. Derry Rogers. Now, something that fascinates me is just how rapidly dentistry is evolving. And I think it's funny how there are so many aspects of it that we just take for granted nowadays. It's hard to imagine a time where composite resin wasn't the norm and digital dentistry didn't exist. And something like social media just wasn't as prevalent as it is nowadays. But our guest today, Dr. Derry Rogers, has been able to witness all of these changes firsthand. Having graduated in 1977 and practiced for over 40 odd years, he was there when the adhesive revolution occurred and he was one of the founding fathers that brought cosmetic dentistry and veneers to Australia and has done over 55,000 veneers in his practicing life. He has a wealth of knowledge that he shares through courses he runs through the DR Institute, but also for any of our listeners that are followers on the Facebook group DPR, you might have seen Dr. Rogers share his tips and tricks for new grads on topics like treatment planning and sequencing, data collection, photography, personality profiling, and so on. And that's exactly what we dive into in today's discussion. Now, Dr. Rogers and I really want this to be a valuable conversation, and you guys can walk away with some key take-home messages and applicable concepts. And so we've also created a Google Drive with templates and documents that talk a little bit more about the concepts that we talk about in today's podcast. And so if you want to get a hold of them, you can find them in our show notes or attached on any of our social media posts about this episode. And if you're interested in learning even more, Dr. Rogers will be running a training program that you can learn a little bit more about at the drinstitute.com.au. As someone who's really just the very, very beginning of my dental journey, I find it so interesting getting to hear from dentists at various stages of their career, whether that be one year out or five years or 10 years or 40 years like Dr. Rogers. And so I hope this conversation gives you guys some interesting insight and perspective as well. Now, just before we jump into today's episode, I want to take this moment just to talk a little bit about our giving project. Now, you all know that at Dental Head Start, we have two main objectives. One is to help dental students and new grads become great dentists, but we also want to help give back to our communities and give others a head start in life as well. Now, unfortunately, the weather this year in Australia has been really relentless and the stormy season has ravaged our local communities in New South Wales and Queensland. And so for the months of January and February, we want to dedicate our giving project to help support the flood relief projects in New South Wales and Queensland. Now, thanks to our sponsors from Clear Aligner Excellence, Dental Practitioner Support, DPL, BOQ, and Principal Practice Management Software, we've donated $2,000 to help support these initiatives. And if you want to get involved yourself, you can find more information on our social media posts. Remember, it's like what we always say, even just giving back 1% can make all the difference. Now, with that being said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Dr. Derry Rogers, it's such a pleasure to have you on the Dental Head Start podcast. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Erica. Pleasure to be here. 
What I really wanted to talk about today is just your tips for new grads having had 40 odd years of experience. And before we get into all of that, I kind of want to just talk a little bit about what led us to having this conversation. And it is because quite recently you joined DPR and that's one of Australia's biggest dental forums on Facebook with over 17,000 followers. And you made quite a little grand entrance and had a very warm welcome because you were sharing some advice and some templates for everyone. And so my first question to you is really having witnessed so many key revolutionary moments in dentistry over your practicing years, what are your thoughts on how social media has influenced the way that we practice dentistry and also obtain and share information? Thanks, Erica. Look, I, I guess there's, I have two views on this. I think there's a positive and I think there's a negative. The positive is that it's enabled information that traditionally was held behind the closed doors of dentistry to be shared to the public. Um, It has enabled dentists to reach out to prospective patients and existing patients to let them know of the changing face of dentistry and what they do. But at the same time, the negative side, as I see, is the ability to offer um, a change in cosmetic appearance to patients who are searching for that. And Unfortunately, I see on too regular a basis patients coming in to see me who have had a series of veneers done or a smile makeover, as many call them, or reconstructive dentistry done that does not suit the patient. And when I've gone back and reviewed with the patient what it was their expectations were, most of them use the, I guess, the lines that the dentist told me he knew what I would look like and would provide a smile for me that would suit me perfectly, and I'm now unhappy with that smile. So the social media site has created this, in a way, this strange set of expectations provided by before and after photographs. Um, and, and patients are then able to sort of come along and, and, and there's a series of, I guess, trust steps that are developed, which is very important. I hope we talk a little bit more about that later. But I think one of the big problems that actually happens at the moment, there's a lot of what we would call somatic focuses, patients who believe that if we do their smile, their life will change. And I'm sure whether we speak to any of our psychology colleagues or psychiatric colleagues, we can't change someone's life. Only the patient can change their life. All we're doing is changing their smile. And if the young dentists of today get caught up in trying to change someone's life by giving them a smile makeover, it ends up leading to an unhappy situation and far too many cases where the young dentist prefers or wishes in hindsight that they not actually started with the case. So I think social media has a positive and a negative used well. It's a great marketing exercise, but integrity and ethics have really got to hold the day throughout that process. Yeah, and do you think, I guess, people get kind of caught up in trying to make a beautiful smile for the full what's presented on social media, and then they kind of at times forget about what's most important for the patient and just getting caught up in what looks good? Yeah, I I, I think so. I I think the the key point for young dentists is this. When somebody walks in the door seemingly carrying a bag of money trying to find a home for it in return for a new smile, we need to sit down, take a big deep breath and just find out what is the patient's expectations Can I satisfy those expectations? Are they realistic expectations? Do I have the clinical skills to deliver that? 
is this a demanding case? Is the patient's expectations too high? And over the years, I've modified many of the systems that we use in patient evaluation. And I think one of the simplest ones that you're, hopefully your listeners can take away from this is that we add to the medical histories two lines in under the heading of what are the expectations for your smile? And question one is, how do you rate your smile now? And we number from one through to 10 and ask them to circle where they rate their smile now. And the second question is, what are the expectations for your smile? And again, we have a line with one number through to 10, asking them to circle the expectations. Wherever we have a differential greater than five, we need to start get, getting concerned about what's really going on there. So if someone rates their initial smile as a two and they want an eight, the differential of six, that to me is way too wide a differential to satisfy those expectations. So we sit down and we find out, is it really a two or is it really a five, a six or a seven and they're truly looking for a seven or eight? I've had some patients come to me and obviously I have a large cosmetic practice um, and on probably 10% of cases, I'd have people say, my current smile's a one, and they'll write 11 outside the lower line and circle that. So I know I've got some real issues that I've got to deal with, and I have no issue whatsoever. If after my initial consultation, which is an hour of data collection and discussing things with them, if I feel I can't satisfy the patient's expectations, I will advise them quite comfortably that they need to go and see a psychologist and understand the expectations and make them realistic. I would prefer to go that pathway than have somebody who a year down the line, when I've got six or 10 veneers sitting in their mouth and they're grossly unhappy with it, wishing I had never started the case. So again, take home point, please don't feel you need to treat everybody. Do your homework, understand the expectations, and don't feel uncomfortable either referring to a colleague or if they feel that it is um, a situation that cannot be helped, advise the patient you can't assist them and maybe it's in their best interest to see a psychologist and provide that referral for them. Work with psychologists in your area that you know can help this patient. Um, and 10 to 20% of those cases that I refer away do come back 12 months later, basically saying, I understand now you can't change my life, but I'd still like a new smile. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're going to dive in perhaps a bit, little bit later on in our talk about all of these, like, you know, data collection and understanding patient expectations, also building trust and value. Like these are kind of the things that we really want to take a deep dive into during our conversation. And just taking it a little bit back a little bit, um, when we were talking about how this was how it, social media has kind of influenced all of this. I guess that's from the patient's perspective and how it's shaped their expectations. What do you think about in terms of the dentist and the dental side of um, things and new grads being exposed to what other people's works are. And uh, another question I just wanted to ask you was just, how do you feel the experience or attitude of new grads are now compared to when you yourself were a new grad? And do you think it has changed over the years? Um, great question. Um, I, I think looking back, Erica, the thing that I've noticed more in dentistry, having a high intellect to get into dental school, 
doesn't necessarily give you great communication skills or the ability to relate to other patients or to relate to patients to find out what it is that their expectations are. And I think today there's more a focus on the university selecting people that can pay full fee in order for them to be able to provide opportunity for others. So I think there's less criteria um, related to that. And unfortunately, young grads are now coming out um, and working in practices where the principle of the practice may not give them a lot of mentoring, a lot of tutoring, or even training in that communication system. And, and I hear far too many young dentists and many who approach me and ask me for advice saying, how can I get mentoring? And really, it's the responsibility of the, cl of the senior clinician that they join to be able to provide that. And, and as we both know on DPR, there's many... Um, there's many comments from dentists saying, I was promised mentoring, it's not there, what do I do? Um, and, and one of the things that we've taken from that, e even in the last week, is we've now built a program for young associates, um, which I'll give you information on later, which will talk about data collection, treatment planning, but more importantly, communication skills, in order to be able to help these young grads start to offer optimal treatment care to their patients and how to move through that sequence of steps that involves diagnosis, treatment planning, sequencing, communication, um, the technical skills and all of those things that are needed to come out at the end of the day feeling happy about the dentistry that they're able to deliver on a daily basis. And I think that's one of the big things that's missing at the moment. We, we're, we're very busy in dental practice, in clinical practice, and I don't think that the mentors that should be there as the senior clinicians are providing that support. So we've elected to build a program around that to help um, to help new grads because it's a wonderful, wonderful occupation that we work within. And I think it's very, very important that from day one, um, the, young, the young associates who are graduating have the ability and have a support environment um, to be able to learn those skills and, and to grow and develop themselves within dentistry. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Rogers, if there's something that I feel like, despite all of these, I guess, downfalls or things that aren't quite perfect, I feel like one positive message or takeaway is that our new grads are clearly keen and eager to learn or keen to you know, own where their shortcomings are or where their weaknesses are and are really taking active steps to try to get better. And like you said, looking for mentoring or being active on DPR or the other dental forums, or even like our listeners who are listening to this dental podcast, a lot of them are seeking ways, I guess, to improve. And that's why, you know, we're here and we really want to be able to provide valuable advice for them. And we're really grateful for people like you in the industry who are so generous with your time and your knowledge to share. And so having said that, I kind of want to dive into a little bit about your background and your past and what has led you to where you are today and you know your a little I guess recap or a trip down memory lane of you know, your 40 odd years of experience finding or founding the DR Institute and yeah what you do nowadays like mentoring younger dentists so could you give me a little bit of info about your dental journey sure um I suppose it goes back, a, it's, it's far too many mm -hmm. years ago and it's probably way before the, <laughs> the starting lifetime of many of your listeners, but um, I always had a very strong interest in, uh, in cosmetic dentistry and facial appearance uh, and in dental school was somewhat frustrated by the fact that there was very little teaching in that. 
And so I started to um, to read outside of uh, my coursework and came across a, a lot of people through dental clinics of North America going back to the 50s and the 60s where they talked about um, denture um, treatments. And, and, and what I discovered out of that is that front teeth control speech. Front teeth and the support of the lips controls facial appearance. That led me down the pathway to meet people such as Charlie Pincus, and Charlie Pincus was a wonderful, wonderful dentist, uh, heavily involved in the uh, the dental scene in uh, Los Angeles, had a practice on uh, Wilshire Boulevard. I was fortunate to have him as a mentor, uh, and Charlie was a very close friend of Bob Hope's. And in those days, the studio heads uh, at MGM and uh, Goldwyn Mayer were, were young gentlemen who had young children of their own. Um, and they approached Bob, who was a well-known actor of the day, and asked him if he knowingly had a friend who was a dentist, would be able to help them. And when Bob said, what are you talking about? And they said, look, we've got a young, young girl here who is about four to five years of age, and we think she has a huge future. And uh, we know, because we've got kids of our own, that at five, six, seven years of age, she's going to lose her baby teeth and she'll have adult teeth come through. And for 12 to 18 months, she won't be able to speak too much. So we've, we've got a concern there. So Charlie was approached by Bob and Bob saw this young girl and, um, and, and looked at everything. And, and with his knowledge of, of speech and front teeth and everything else, he um, decided to make a set of um, clip-on acrylic teeth. And because they only had acrylic in those days, they didn't have composite. And he made these on a model of her mouth and put them on before she went off to do a movie and sent her off to speech training so that she got used to speaking with them. And throughout her early early years, from four to seven or eight years of age, no one actually knew that she had baby teeth underneath these clip-on veneers. Now, I'm sure some of you are saying, I wonder who this was. Well, her name was Shirley Temple. And if you actually go back to the early days of her movies at four years of age, she had adult teeth. So at no stage did she actually, or did the studio heads, lose her to, um, uh, to the erupting baby tooth situation. So in working with Charlie, he, he taught me um, so much about aesthetics and how teeth fit within the face. That led me on to meeting the likes of Ronnie Goldstein, Dave Garber, um, Frank Spears, John Coyce, and then the adhesive revolution, which I was part of in the U.S., with John Kanker, Bertolotti, Fusayama, Inokoshi in Japan. And, and so we're here now, I guess today, knowing that when we consult with a patient, we firstly need to look at how the teeth fit within the face. Do they fit the guidelines and the norms that we now know exist? And if they don't, how do we actually enable the patient to see what could be done? And that then led to Christian Coachman, my good friend, um, developing digital smile design where we can take models, whether they be digital or whether they be analog, and waxing or designing it so that we can actually do transfer systems to put that information into the patient's mouth, take photographs of the face and everything else, and engage with the patient to be able to see what can happen. And then we need to step back and from a treatment planning perspective say, if we're going to increase the length of teeth in a patient's smile, is that increase in overbite going to lead to structural issues? So then we go into the treatment planning side of things. So I, I guess I've been extremely fortunate to, to be, I guess, in the, in the development of, um, of aesthetic dentistry from the outset. 
Um, I brought it to Australia. I did the earliest veneers in Australia back in 1984, and it's nice to know that they're still in the patient's mouth. Um, I've done close to 55,000 veneers over the uh, the time, so and made some mistakes, but been able to learn from those. And I think that's a very, very important thing for young young grads. And and the other thing that I would encourage them to do is to, as a group, review their photographs of their own work on a monthly basis, blow it up on a big screen, have a look at what you've done and, and, and get the feedback from yourself and colleagues that you respect as to how you can improve. And then if you're struggling to understand some technical issues, reach out to, uh, to, to colleagues. And, and as we, you know, as you've said earlier, I'm more than happy to share that knowledge there. I think that the cosmetic side was through the, um, the 60s and 70s, early 80s. The structural foundation side was through the 80s, early 90s. And one person that I really feel has done a huge amount of dentist for, for dentistry has been uh, Professor Pascal Marnier. Pascal, uh, again, a good friend, um, pretty much introduced us to force management in dentistry. Um, we can use adhesion. And as many of your listeners will know, sometimes things fall off teeth and it's either related to poor adhesion management or poor, poor force management. And Pascal's written many wonderful books and articles on understanding tensile and compressive forces and whether bruxing leads to lateral forces. How do we protect against that? How do we design occlusion? So Pascal was very, very big um, in starting that off and through the early 2000s and up into probably um, you know, 2010, 2012. Then Christian Coachman came along and started developing digital smile design. And so there's been all of these wonderful steps that have led us to the point where we are now. The great tragedy, I believe, Erica, is that's not being taught in dental school. Those things are not being provided for. In, in dental school, certainly throughout Australia. I know they are in the US. My lecturing colleagues that I work with are engaging them into various programs. Marcus Blatt's professor of restorative at um, Pennsylvania has now got a digital laboratory for third and fourth year dentists where they can actually start to use the digital design systems and with Christian Coachman's um, templates and the like, be able to graduate with knowledge of all of those areas. Pascal, obviously being based at, um, in Los Angeles, has programs there. So it's, it's a matter of pulling all of those pieces together. And I think most of your young grads will hopefully from this podcast realise that there are many other things out there. Their access to it obviously can happen through our institute and the like. Otherwise, I would certainly encourage them to consider after, say, two to three years of practice to head off to the States and do programs with, uh, with Johnny Coyce, with um, Pascal, with Marcus Blatz, um, the, uh, the guys at, uh, at NYU. There's lots of fabulous programs around the world and any of your um, listeners who are interested, just get them to reach out to us and we can certainly direct them in, in areas where they can, um, they can learn more as well as what they can learn at our institute as well with our wonderful group of um, specialist lecturers. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like the two points that I took away from what you just said just then was like, it was so fascinating hearing about that story of Shirley Temple and how you know veneers first became a thing and that's something that I feel like when I think about you know right now going through dental school is we don't really know the history of what we do today and we kind of take it for granted but it is so fascinating seeing where it started and how it developed and just 
what brought us to today. And it's interesting and fascinating to see how you got to witness firsthand that progression and you you yourself being one of the forefathers of bringing that to Australia. And the second thing was just, we don't really know what we don't know. And being in dental school and whatever university that we're at, we kind of just learn whatever our curriculum tells us or what our lecturers say. And we're not very aware of what other universities in Australia teach, let alone what other universities around the world teach. And I think it's very interesting how you've had that opportunity to teach and to lecture and travel around the world and really compare it. And so a question for you is just, how does Australia compare to the rest of the world? And where do you see dentistry moving in Australia in these next few years? Do you feel like we'll catch up with the rest of the world? Um, Another great question. (laughs) Uh, Look, the standard of dental care in Australia is obviously very, very good. I wouldn't rate the standard of dental care in England um, very high because the NHS is effectively a third party pays and the quality that's attached to that is not very high. Um, I think at the moment the leading centres in the world for occlusion and adhesive dentistry is the US. Probably the leading areas for implants is Milan, Northern Italy, um, some of my Parisian colleagues. Um, Where are we at academically in Australia? I think we're probably anything from two to five years behind, depending upon the university you speak to. But I say that comment with the greatest deference to um, my colleagues, including Laurie Walsh and many of the other professors in, in, in Australia, is that with large populations such as the US and Europe, the, the demand and the drive to create forward movement is huge. We don't have that many clinicians in Australia driving that. The, the, the talented clinicians here are going offshore to find that information and either doing their master's programs and coming back and then disseminating that knowledge but from a populist perspective, US and Europe is much, much bigger. The, the population is, is driving demand more. And I think as a result, we're starting to, to see that the US and Europe is probably ahead of us by a couple of years. Now, I, I wrote an article um, some years ago for a, um, an Australian uh, women's magazine where I was asked, how do you see dentistry as it relates to fashion? specifically cosmetic dentistry. And and I remember at the time um, thinking through this, and effectively I'd said European dentistry um, is is typified by by form and shape, and colour is probably more A2, A3. And if you look at the fashions of Europe and Paris, it's the cut and quality of the material rather than the colour of the material. If you look at the US, it's usually pretty bright and it's pretty loud. And whether it be LA and you know to some degree New York, it's it's the how how much impact it has. And and veneers obviously are more B one O and three O M one. And Australia sits somewhere in the middle of that. And probably our most defining fashion label was Country Road. Still, you know, a wonderful. Um, icon of fashion and and their colors are oatmeals and lights and whites and and gentle tones and and i think that australian veneers sit within that there is certainly those that want bright white and loud um and and an old client of mine i think uh, shane warne who typified that to some degree rest his soul um 
and and also I was not involved in doing his veneers, but that's what Shane wanted, and it suited his personality style. And then as we start to move down towards the my, my typical colour for someone over forty five is um, A one gingival, B one body, O M three incisal. As we move into the 20, 25-year-old age group, we're pushing more to OM3, OM2, B1 going up to the gingival. And for those over the age of probably 65, we're doing A2 on the the gingivals of canines down to A1, B1 and on the anteriors, B1, OM3, OM2. So there is a link into the fashion side of things. And um, I think we need to look at the age of our patient, the expectations of our patients, their cultural backgrounds. We've got lots of Americans who are in Australia who want OM3, OM2, OM1. We have a lot of Europeans, a wonderful culture that they brought to this fabulous country of ours that are more darker based, more A2, A1, B1. So I, I think we've got to look beyond I do veneers and their A1 or B1. And, and in light of that, uh, Erica, I think it's very, very important for the young graduates and the associates to spend time with their dental laboratories, talk to the ceramists about it, understand that if they're going to under-prep teeth and, and we're using translucent layers of porcelain, the underlying colour of the tooth is going to have an impact upon it. So do we need to prep more? Do we need to develop techniques for sub-opaquing? What colour do we want it to be? What colour is the underlying? Take photographs before, during and after and sit with the dental ceramists and understand the issues that they have so that as a team we start to build that skill set. And, and the wonderful mentorship of people like Russell Young, who I've worked with for you know, over 40 years at um, Amiga Ceramics, when both of us have been strongly involved in bringing Christian, uh, Christian coaching out to the country. Russell is a wonderful, wonderful mentor to young dentists. And, and he and, and I developed a lot of these techniques in the early days. And, and we lecture together regularly on if you're going to do a change from, say, an A2 to a B1, and you're only going to minimally prep, the underlying substrate colour is going to have a major impact on the final colour. And the last thing that we want young dentists to do is that they prep the teeth minimally because we're staying in enamel. They're not necessarily augmenting to provide lip support or whatever it is that they're trying to do. And the day that arrives that they're going to put the veneers on and they make the fatal mistake of cementing the veneers and saying to the patient, well, there's your new smile. And the patient looks in the mirror and goes, I don't like it. What do you do now? So provisionalization, which is placement of, uh, some would call it temporaries, but to me a temporary is something that sits there until the laboratory gets their work back, where a provisional is something that recreates and provides an and, and insight into the final result. If the patient's not happy with their provisional veneers, crowns or otherwise, then I know that I'm going to have some issues at the end of the day and, and I need to be working with my ceramist and the patient to resolve these issues before I go to cementation. Yeah, that's really great insight. And I'd never realized until you mentioned it, but that's really fascinating about how expectations for smiles and aesthetics differs across the world. I'd never thought of it, but it makes entire sense about the expectations in Europe, the expectations in America, and I'm sure it differs in Asia as well. Um, but yeah, we've, we've teased 
on so many little tips and you know nuggets of gold throughout our conversation right now. And what I want to do just as we move on into our conversation is really to take a deep dive into these topics that we've mentioned, you know, throughout our talk so far. And you know, prior to this conversation, Dr. Rogers, we kind of came down to five key take-home messages that we wanted our listeners to walk away from this podcast with. And it was um, talking about personality profiling and the people puzzle, data collection and photography, then diagnosis, treatment planning, the case presentations and sequencing, and then finally the stages in the life of a dental practitioner and that relevance to new grads. And so this is, I guess, the blood and guts of our conversation today. And so we're going to provide some resources for our listeners as well in the show notes and on Facebook and Instagram if people are following us. So why don't we start off with that first topic then about personality profiling? And I guess, could you just tell me, what is personality profiling? Personality profiling is, I guess, an understanding of the personality of the patient that we're talking about. But it's not just the personality of the patient, it's also our own personality. So as much as this is a generalisation, what I'm about to say, and a categorisation of people, we break people down into four basic personality styles, directors, socialisers, relators and thinkers, and we break them down on the basis of their E's and their A's. E's are their emotive level of engagement and A's are their level of assertiveness. A director has low E, high A's, very demanding, don't share a lot of themselves. Socialisers have high E's and high A's, share a lot of themselves and also have a very strong demand for what they want. The, the classic um, cosmetic patient coming in wanting a smile makeover. Relators have low E's, but it builds over time as trust development occurs and low A's. This is the patient that comes in, has broken a tooth. Um, the dentist patches it, tells them they need a crown. Um, they go to reception, they make the appointment um, for the crown prep. And then a day before the crown prep occurs or is due, they or generally a friend of theirs calls up and cancels. And what you were doing was you were dealing with a relator. You backed them into a corner telling them that they needed a crown. You didn't explain why and you didn't spend the time engaging with them to build trust to enable the emotional engagement for them to accept the recommendation. And because their A's are low, they're not going to challenge the dentist at the time to say, why do I need a crown? And the thinkers have low E's and low A's. They don't share a lot of themselves and they process and think a lot. And I'm sure that our listeners have all seen um, or been greeted by a new patient sitting in consultation that doesn't give them any feedback on what's going on. These are generally typified by their profession, IT people, engineers, architects, um, and don't expect them to give you feedback on something. They're processing it. They are thinkers. Now, if you look at the four corners of that, and we shared that resource in DPR, the diametrically opposed ones are the thinkers and the socialisers. If a socialiser looking for a smile makeover comes into a thinker dentist, the thinker dentist is going to process it way too much and the trust development that's needed there to create understanding is not going to happen. The director socialiser, sorry, the director relator is going to be the same situation. And what you will tend to find is that 
If the dentists reflect on themselves as to their own personality styles, it gives them an insight into the type of practice they are more than likely going to build. So directors will attract directors, socialisers will attract socialisers, thinkers will attract thinkers and relators will attract relators. What I tend to find in this day and age is that 80 to 85% of graduating dentists are thinkers. They're very, very good at IQ. They're not great at EQ and they need to learn that skill. Now, it's a difficult skill to develop and master, and that's why, as I said earlier, use photography and someone else within the clinic to provide that communication skill. So that communication skill is going to be underpinned by personality style more than likely related to being a socialiser or a relater. So when I consult in my consulting business, I look at when I walk into a practice what the personality style is at reception. What's ideal? Socialise a director. Chairside nurse, socialise a relator. Dentist should be a quadraphonic schizophrenic. He should know how to move around all the four personality styles. So at our morning meeting, our morning huddle, quarter of an hour before we start, all of the attending clinicians tell us the name of the patient, what's happening that day, what the treatment is planned, where they're at in recall, where they're in maintenance and what the personality style is. And I write those DSRTs on my overview sheet, which is in three or four different places in my practice. And as I walk around, as I go from one room to another, I will check that to know how I have to change myself. Because if I've done some difficult reconstructive work and I'm in thinker mode and I'm about to meet a new patient who's a socialiser, I have to switch myself up to that socialiser style to develop accelerated trust development to at least the patient understand I'm listening to them, I, I know what they're asking and I can provide answers to those questions usually in the second visit. So personality profiling totally underpins communication or successive communication and trust development. And I love this whole concept of personality profiling and just you know diving into the understanding the cogworks or how what gets people ticking, right? And I guess the question I was going to ask, you already answered it, where I was going to say, is there a ideal personality type for a dentist? And you kind of already gave it away saying the quadraphonic schizophrenic. And a dentist once told me that the best personality type is the adaptable one, where you're able to cater yourself to whatever the personality type of the patient that walks in. And that's exactly what that is, Erica. I, I guess the other thing for, the, for those of your listeners who are you know, really interested in this, there, there is also an area of neurolinguistic programming where we have auditories, visuals and kinesthetics how people actually receive information. Do they hear it? Do they feel it? Do they see it? So suddenly I've got 12 personality styles. Now, over a period of time, and I'm sure your listeners will initially, and they'll make mistakes in this, they will initially try to pigeonhole people on the basis of their categorization. And that's okay. Learn from the mistakes. But it will get to a stage after a three to five year period of time that it starts to become innate. And I'm, I'm sure your listeners would all know if you've been to a party and you, you know, talking to a loved one or friends afterwards, you know, how was the night? It was wonderful. I met this person and it was though time just stood still and, 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 and I forgot time. And then others where they move from person to person that they weren't really engaging with. And that's diametrically opposed personalities versus similar personalities. So dentistry is the same. 
you will feel as a thinker personality that it is difficult to deal with socialisers and at times difficult to deal with directors. Thinkers tend to deal better with relators, socialisers better with socialisers and directors. So we have to take this on board in our practices and if our aim is to make our life enjoyable um, whilst we're doing our daily practice, we have to understand the personality styles that are around us. And and I guess as a... um, as a young grad, if I was looking for a practice to join, I, I would be looking at the personality of the principal um, to make sure that we complement each other and that the mentoring that we spoke about earlier is also on offer. But rather than just accepting that, ask the questions how, where, when and why. What are we actually trying to achieve? And as Simon Sinek would say in most of his great um, podcasts, you know, understand the why of what a practice is about. So those are little pieces, the little vignettes that your young grads have got to go out there and find before they start to decide what practice that they want to work in. It's that time of year again. Before June 30, we have to renew our indemnity insurance. And when I look for an insurer, I'm looking for someone who's going to be there when I need their help. They're going to act fast and they're going to be by my side so I can practice with confidence. I get all of that from Dental Protection Limited. What I love about them is that they're more than just an insurer. They're actually here to help us, to give us content and support us with medical legal situations and most importantly, help us avoid these situations. The content they produce is the best content out there from an insurer like them. Renewal notices are out in May. To make sure you get all of these added benefits, sign up by June 30. I can say from personal experience, when you need help, you'll be glad you're with Dental Protection Limited. Thank you, Dental Protection Limited, for supporting me in my career and the Dental Head Start podcast. clinical tips on once we've identified and I, I know we said that before that we don't want to pigeonhole people into specific categories and that these are broad generalizations but are there any tips I like that you would suggest when interacting with the socializer like how should you talk to them or how should you talk to someone who is a thinker how should you talk to someone who's a director how you should talk to someone who's a relator you did mention before using photography as a tool but do you have any other tips on how to relate to each of these broad categories? Um, one of the easiest things to do, Erica, is this. Um, we, we use um, Dental for Windows. It's a practice management software. My associates collect all of the photographs and there is non-retracted smile, retracted smile, um, upper, inter- upper anterior incisal, lower anterior incisal, upper right, upper left, lower right, lower left. And they're always done in the same sequence. Why? Because some of them we're going to be taking in mirror shots. And I know that as I run through and the associate does this for me, when I walk into the room to meet the patient for the first time, all the photos are up on the screen. And I will go to the first photograph and I will say, hi, Mrs. X, how are you? What do you think about this? Now, I obviously know a lot of information beforehand because I've been briefed literally in the hallway or the medical history I've seen. So my time with the new patient is about five minutes. In that time, when I pulled up the, um, the picture of their non-retracted smile with the teeth slightly separated, so the black showing the incisal silhouette, I watched their reaction. I listened to how they engage with me about their smile as a third-party observer. And I'm instantly switching on personality style to change myself. 
If I've got somebody who I think is a socialiser and I hear them talking about, I don't like my smile, I've got the edges here, I've got that there, I've got that there, I'm obviously treating with someone who's more assertive. Depending upon the level of aesthetics that they jump into will define whether they're socialiser or director. Directors tend to be much more functional. I'm chipping a tooth, I'm breaking a tooth, or I'm not interested in my front teeth, I've got problems in the back. I will immediately jump to the back. And I can see what's going on in those areas there because the pictures are on my screen. So I'll go to that area, is this what you're talking about? And they'll say, yes, this has been done so many times, it's broken, what do we do now? So I can then guide them down a pathway. I am never, ever going to diagnose or treatment plan or cost in that first meet and greet visit, never. Your thinker, relator, patient, clinicians will be run over the top of by a director who just wants to know how much it's going to be. And on far too many occasions, the dentist has said, oh, it's, it's a crown, it's $1,100. And the director goes, that's fine, I thought it would be about $2,000. And the thinker goes, my God, why didn't I actually work this out first? So back off from that. If someone pushes you on that, you're working with a director. And as I would say to them, and I'm obviously going to switch on my director personality style, I can appreciate your concern for this. I need to do due diligence on your mouth. I need to look at the x-rays. I need to review and sit down and understand occlusion, the bite, what's going on here, so that I can give you an answer that's going to work long term. And one thing I guarantee you is I'll give you a written treatment plan that we'll discuss together with all of the costings there. Is that okay? And I've never had anyone push me any further. Actually, no, I tell a fib. 12 to 15 <laughs> years ago, I've had one who said yeah. to me, I just want to know what number you're talking about. It was a very, very strong director. It was somebody that I really didn't feel that I wanted to look after, and I literally pulled a number out of the air. It was a full-mouth rehab on a massive Bruxer, and I said, it's going to be 65000 And he said, okay, when do we start? So you have to be careful with these situations. Please, please, please do the time get great quality photographs, understand diagnosis and treatment planning, step back in your quiet times after work when no pressure is on you and work out with a systematized format, what are you going to be doing? What's the sequence of this? So then you can present it to the patient as to what they ideally need. If this was your mother, father, girlfriend, partner, whatever, what would you, what would you recommend in their mouth? And that becomes the ideals as to what we offer. If you want to build the ideal practice, offer ideal treatment. And I guess the other great adage that my wonderful mentor, Hal Chevelle in Chicago, taught me is the eye can't see what the mind doesn't recognize. If you don't know what you're looking for, you will never see it. So as a young grad, expand your knowledge base, learn from mentors, make sure that you're keeping up with both technology and what's happening occlusally functionally. Um, we're now in the world of sleep apnea and bruxing and the links to between those two things together. Should we be doing rehab before we get um, our patients off for, for sleep um, assessments? Are they TMJ stable? Are they not? Understand all of those things. It's, I know it's a huge, huge ask and these are things you probably never, ever heard of in dental school. But modern day dental practice, if you really want to commit to this in the long term, requires you to start that journey. I think the, the, the best, I suppose, overview that I could give young grads of dental school, you gained your license to start learning. That's all you got. No more than that. You're safe. 
you're not going to kill someone and your demonstrators and the faculty have decided that you've got enough knowledge not to be dangerous. Now it's time to learn. I agree with that statement so much and something that a lot of my mentors or you know, older dentists have said to me about how dentist is really just the beginning and that all the learning starts the day we graduate. And I think what you've just said so far is a really beautiful segue into talking about data collection and treatment planning because you've said, okay, you know, we've kind of figured out, okay, what is our patient like? How do we how should we go about trying to gel with them? Talk me through your new patient exam and that very first appointment. I think you teased a little bit about it before, about how your, was it your dental nurse that would take all those photos for you? And then that's when you walk in to greet them. Can you talk me through the moment your patient comes in? What is their first experience like and how you go about treatment planning them from there? Sure. Let, let's take it back a bit. The inbound phone call. The inbound phone call is a screening process. And it's a screening process in a number of ways. We're trying to work out the personality style of the patient. Why? Because that defines when we actually make the appointment for the patient. Directors first thing in the morning, first cab off the rank. Socialisers last patient in the morning before lunch. They're going to want to chat. Relators and thinkers, we put them in that part of the day where we can be focused, we can be on time, but not as crucial as socialiser directors. So we've got personality style now. We then want to know what's the presenting complaint. Is this a new patient examination for general dentistry? Is this I want a clean and a checkup? Is this I want a cosmetic evaluation? Is this I'm referred by somebody else to your practice? We want to know what that's about. So the patient turns up, they fill in the medical questionnaires. Um, we have got built into the medical and dental questionnaires a number of, I guess, evaluation points. As I mentioned earlier, aesthetic evaluation, how do you rate your smile now? What's your expectations? Um, all of their medical, dental, past history, what's been going on. And third page um, beyond the medical history, dental history is a stop bang analysis. We're very, very big on sleep analysis. And the stop bang or the Epworth evaluation will give us some sense as to whether we need to investigate that further. All of that data is now available and is provided to me. I'm not seeing the new patient straight up. One of my associates is. And um, they will meet and greet. They will switch their personality style to that patient. Um, and then they will explain what we need to do. First thing is an OPG screening. OPG is taken. Patient's brought back in. Um, we may or may not at that stage sit them down with the OPG and look at things. Now, when we do an OPG screening, we're looking first and foremost, we are not looking at the teeth. We're looking at the spine. We're looking at hyoid bone. We're looking at styloid process. We're looking at sinuses, TMJs, making sure everything's stable. Um, we're seeing more and more issues called calciotobes. Calciotobes are calcifications in the internal carotid artery and external carotid artery. And you see them at the side of the neck there at the base of the OPG. Our over 65-year-olds, we see them, I'm not going to say regularly, but enough times that we would send them off to their doctor and I will send the OPG with it and I will actually type on the OPG what I'm looking at. And 50% need evaluation. Oh, sorry, 100% need evaluation with ultrasound and 50% of those have gone on to, um, uh, to circulatory surgery. Um, we, we, we are, we're a screening house. The new patient examination is I'm not just looking at their teeth. I'm looking at how the oral environment relates to the systemic environment. Are they smokers? What's the link there? All of these things are discussed before I get into the mouth. The mouth is the easiest thing to do. 
I could literally look in her mouth and in five seconds know is this hygiene, wear case, rehab case, cosmetic case, um, massive breakdown case. It's really, really simple to do that. So I'm not going to jump in there. So I'm then brought in after all of the data collections done. Data collection includes OPG, full series of photographs. If patients have got large posterior restorations, four PAs, each quadrant and upper anteriors. If we're doing cosmetics, always upper and lower anteriors. Um, we also have individual bite wings, but the individual x-rays are never developed at that meeting with the patient. The reason being, I want to do a general overview of photographs and OPG. I don't want to have to sit down and deal with the minutiae of the individual x-rays, which A, the patient doesn't understand anyway, and you waste a huge amount of time doing it, unless you're dealing with a very, very specific issue. So if the patient's actually coming in as an emergency, you're not doing a new patient exam. You're doing an emergency examination. Separate those two things out. And I think a, a big, big point I'd like to make for um, your listeners, uh, Erica, is that if someone comes in with a, an abscess tooth, fractured tooth, VRF, vertical root fracture, whatever it is, and you see other things there, leave the other things alone. Focus on getting the patient out of pain. Start to build the relationship with the patient that says you care, you've taken care of my issue. Sow the seeds that there are other issues and you may elect to grab a photo of the offending tooth and quickly grab the other four quadrants. So learn photography, have it point and shoot, point and shoot, point and shoot. I'm, I'm very fortunate, as, as I've already mentioned to you, my son is a fashion photographer who lives in New York, so I have access to a lot of cameras, a lot of photography techniques, uh, and we teach that in our institute so that it is simple. Nurses are taught to do it. Hygienists are taught to do it. It's point and shoot, point and shoot. So we can grab four pictures literally within two minutes. As we're reviewing what we're about to treat in the emergency patient, I would quickly go through the other's quadrants very briefly and say, Mrs. X, Here's the offending issue, but I've noticed similar problems in other parts of the mouth. Today is not the day we talk about that. Today is the day we look after this issue for you. So I've delineated out an emergency exam from a new patient exam. And again, underpinned by personality styles, the, um, the socializer might say, well, yeah, I'm worried about that other tooth, even though I've got this one today. The director may say, well, they concern me as well. If this is going to lead to that, what should we do? Let's focus on what we're doing at the moment. Let's take care of this issue today and let's bring you back and sit down and discuss these other areas there. So we've reviewed the photographs as the new patient examination. We've worked out what's happening. I've sown the seeds of two things only. A, in the photographs, there is going to be gum infection. I want to build my hygiene program. My hygiene program is trust development and case development and they become the gatekeepers of restorative. So I want to make sure they're a major part of the team. And I'll say, Mr. X, Mrs. X, you've got gum infection around these teeth. That needs to be treated first and foremost. And secondly, you and I are going to sit down and we're going to go through all of the things that we've discussed, all of the issues that you've brought up. And I'm going to give you some options of treatment and costing and timing and stages. And I'll address it all at that point. So effectively, I'm saying, don't ask me any more questions. I have one hour that I've got to see you for. Three quarters of that hour has been taken up in data collection. 15 minutes, probably five minutes with me, and then they're released to reception for the two appointments, hygiene 
and treatment planning, case discussion. Now, should they be done together? Ideally. Should they be done one before the other? It's up to you. Depends upon the flow through your hygiene appointment book and everything else. So that's my new patient exam. So at that first appointment, you are not presenting the treatment Never. to them. Yeah, you are gathering. You're gathering all of your investigations. Do you do any for anything for them at that point? Aside from taking X-rays, would you do a clean or anything? Or it's no, they've come in, you've had a chat, and so you. How do you end that conversation with them then? So you said you book them in for an like a hygiene appointment if necessary, and then would you, are you saying that you're bringing them in? another time to have a chat about. I am. Let, let me just go back are. to a point that for, to a word that you actually asked me. And if you were an associate of mine, you would never be allowed to say this word again. We do not do cleans. We do not do cleans. We treat gum infection. If all you do is a clean, the patient just thinks they can come in and then literally have a prophy and their mouth is happy. It's, it's never like that, Erica. And unfortunately, this is a dental school fallover. If you really want to get involved in dentistry and show that you care to the patient, they have gum infection. Gingivitis is a gum infection. Periodontitis is a severe gum infection. So we do not ever clean teeth. So again, please, the young associates that we've got out there, the young grads, anyone, never, ever use that word. It totally undermines the value of what we do when we're doing gum therapy. Mm. So what would you say? We're treating gum infection. And the people that look after that in my practice are my highly trained, highly skilled hygienists. If your dentists do the cleans, as you call them, I would suggest that they go to another practice and have a hygiene therapy done by a highly qualified hygienist and understand how it feels and looks and the results achieved. And when they go into hygiene, they're getting a full periodontal chart, six points on everything. We don't do CPITNs. Full periodontal chart, x-rays are there, photographs are there. After the probing, that leads to a drop-down menu which provides how many appointments are required. Primary debride is done. We use the the new EMS systems, the the Swiss system for for biofilm removal. And then the secondary visit is the follow-up of calculus and, um, and the management of all of the issues that are there. We use Paloxab, which is an antibiotic that we have actually designed with compounding pharmacists to inject into pockets greater than three to four millimetres. So we do a lot of therapy in that area. The value drivers that the patient feels they're receiving from us are huge. So please never use the word clean. Um, So at the end of the new patient exam, I'm saying to the patient, there's the gum infection that we can see. We need to treat that first. And secondly, I'm going to organize an appointment for you and I to sit down after I've done my due diligence on all the information that I've collected, some of which you've not seen, but I'll have available to me within the next week. And we'll talk about all the options and the timing and the costs of treatment. And that's when I'm discharging. So I have a lot of control of that appointment. As I'm sure you and your listeners can gather, I have switched on director, director socializer. I have to control that appointment. Your relator thinkers can get caught up in this ongoing diatribe of information sharing that's really unnecessary control the appointment, consolidate it, and set the patient up for the case discussion and the treatment for the gum infection at the next visit. And so you've shared a document on DPR as well about 
your treatment planning template that you go through. And I guess, are we going into that? Is this our next stage then after we've dismissed the patient and then we are now writing up what our plan is that we're going to present to them? So we, we're now at the time that I'm able to sit down in a quiet moment with, and, and I'm an early morning person, so I, I'm up at about half past four, I leave home at five, I have an hour's drive to the clinic, I have an hour and a half before my staff arrive to do my treatment plans and, and just getting my day organised. So I'll pull up on two screens, the photographs on one screen, my treatment plan template on the other one in the Word doc. Stage one, gum health. Um, there's a two, minimum two visits and it states in that template what that's going to be. Stage two, bleaching. Why would I put bleaching first? Because if I'm going to do restorative dentistry, I need to know what colour I'm going to make restorative. If it's simple fillings, if it's rehab, if it's veneers, we need to know the bleaching is going to be the next one because that sets our colours up. Thirdly, is front of mouth. Is it rehab? Is it bonding? Is it ortho? Um, is it night splint for bruxing? Fourthly, back of mouth. And I build it into quadrants, quadrant one, two, three, four, priority one, two, three, four. Am I doing fissure seals? Am I doing general dentistry? Am I doing core foundations and investigating a tooth? Am I doing rehab? And the template has got all of that built into it. Thirdly, my specialist referrals. Am I doing referral for max facts for wisdom teeth? Am I doing endo-referral, perio-referral? Am I doing ortho-referral? Am I doing OMS-referral for biopsy, white spots, um, sleep issues? And then the fourth is the disclaimer on all of the things that may happen, gum health issues, um, the issues related to um, endodontic treatment in deep teeth, disclaimers, a risk analysis on um, aesthetics, function, structure, biology, gingivity, and decay. So we've got a very, very tight format. Now, we've built this um, template that has been reviewed by ADA lawyers, many of my specialist colleagues, and it's been built in a way that you don't really have to add anything to it, but it is, becomes important as things that you may take out of it. So if they're only seeing max facts, you don't need the other specialists, you take that out. If the priorities related to the posterior sections are upper right, lower left, lower right and upper left, we prioritise them that way. And we cost them and we use the ADA codes as well. So when the patient says, you know, what will I get back? Mrs X, Mr X, this is a relationship that you have with your dental benefits and you need to ask them and we've provided the codes accordingly. So at the case presentation, I've got all of my photographs. Now we go on to the 28-inch Mac. And we run through, we take it through the slideshow format. We hit the um, photographs in the order that we're going to present them. And we have waiting for us the opening picture, which is outside the mouth. And then we start to go inside the mouth. And then at the end of it, we come back out of the mouth. So we duplicate the smile photo. And we take them through that. And we go backwards and forwards as required to explain what our recommendation is in the written treatment plan. The written treatment plan is printed and it's in a beautiful folder um, that the patient takes away with them. And that then is going to be uploaded into their file notes. So at any stage, we can refer through that where are we actually at. So at the end of that, for the young associates who don't have that communication skill, I'd be recommending that you hand that over to somebody in your practice, whether it's a um, communications manager or otherwise. And if they feel uncomfortable in that environment, you should not spend any more than five to seven minutes in that room with the patient. 
you're leading them on a journey of the photographs through the mouth. The longer that you stay there, in my experience, the more that you undermine your own skills. And when questions are asked and you don't, you're uncomfortable answering them because of sometimes the threatening personality style, it is best to be out of the room and handed over to the communications manager or the treatment coordinator who can answer those questions. So you need to spend time training those people as well. I leave the room and say, Mrs. X, if there's any, if you don't have any more technical questions, I'll ask Miss X, whatever her name would be, to go through any of the sequencing and, um, and, and timing types of visits that we need. I've advised her, him of those. Um, I look forward to seeing you at your next visit and I'm gone. And so how do you go about sequencing what needs to be done? Do you, are certain things prioritised over others or is it very, very much patient-driven? And we also mentioned the Im- impact that finance has on it as well. How does that treatment sequencing come into play? And is that usually for you taken care of by your treatment coordinator? Sure. Well, my treatment plan has been written in a sequence. Step one, hygiene. We always want gum health sorted out first. Step two is bleaching. Step three is either anterior or posterior. So I think the question you're asking is that if you've taken care of foundations, bleaching has been approved or not approved, and now we're either going to go anterior or posterior. My general treatment area is decay management is next. Decay management gives me the ability to also investigate teeth that I'm concerned about that might be endo or might be lost. If I've got a tooth that's going to be endodontically treated and is heavily, heavily filled, fast forward this, it's been to the endodontist, it's come back, there's a foundation in it, and I prep the tooth for a crown, all I'm prepping is a core, and there's no tooth structure, there's no ferrule, there's no 1.5 millimetres of vertical height with two millimetres on top of core foundation, why am I actually going to be treating that tooth? That's a tooth that's for extraction. If I'm going to be doing that and the patient wants optimal dentistry, the person who does the extraction is the person who's going to do the implant. That's not me. I don't do implant surgery. So my periodontist is going to become involved in actually removing one, many teeth and preparing the socket, socket preservation techniques with grafting or otherwise for an implant either immediate or three months later. So we sequence our way all through that. Now. Again, these are things that are not taught in dental school. So to a lot of your listeners, they're probably sitting there going, what is he talking about? (laughs) And it's only after five to 10 years as you start to see the issues of your recommendations not being fulfilled that you start to realise that there is a higher plane that you need to work at. So that's why when I do my risk analysis, aesthetics is first. Do I have high aesthetic expectations from the patient? If so, can I satisfy those expectations? Do I refer? Do I take them through a discovery process of DSD to sort out what they're expecting? Function, do I have a functional issue going on? Have I got a bruxa? If I've got a bruxa and heavily filled teeth, I'm going to be rebuilding those teeth. I'm not just going to be refilling those teeth. Structurally, do I have enough tooth structure? Do we need endodontic appraisal? what's happening in those areas there. So our own skill sets start to become involved. So the template has got all of those sequencing points. Um, A a little example. Um, You you may have a patient who's had antibiotic um, uh, staining, influence, hyperplasia on their six-year-old molars because of childhood illnesses. 
and the four six-year-old molars are heavily filled and need to be rebuilt. Um, and the lower six may have been refilled at one stage and left low. There, there is an old saying, and it comes from dental school days, in terms of balancing occlusion, it's cut it low and let it grow. In other words, cut it out of occlusion so you don't have to stress about the bite and the opposing tooth will grow down. Well, imagine if the lower tooth has been filled with an amalgam and it's been left really low and the opposing tooth has super erupted and you want to do the lower tooth first, what are you going to do about the upper tooth? So you have to do both together if you're going to be rebuilding. You're not going to rebuild the lower six-year-old molar to fit the over-erupted upper six-year-old molar. So we need to talk about sequencing. Mrs. X, Mr. X, we need to do both of these teeth together. I can't do ideal dentistry on the lower while the opposing tooth is hanging down. I need to do both and then my ceramics can put things together. So there's all of these sequencing techniques that we go through. And at the Institute, we take the patient or sorry, we take the, the dentist through these multiple, many, many cases. So they get to the stage of going, I now know what I've got to look at before I start the treatment plan. And when I do treatment plan, I know the sequences that I'm going to be recommending. And we provide sequencing sheets as well to the treatment coordinators so they know the steps in the process. So it's a very structured, templated system that enables the young dentist to start and come out the other end on a one, three, five or 10 year period and not have any regrets. We should have done this other bit of dentistry first. What are you focusing on this year? What are the CPD topics, the disciplines that you really want to get better at? And how do you find all the information out there on those topics? cpdjunkie.com.au is made to be a comprehensive directory of CPD in Australia and New Zealand. We created this because we found this frustrating and now there is a system where you can be alerted if there's topics that come up that you are interested in. Make an account at cpdjunkie.com.au and update your alert settings. Every month on the 20th, we send an email sending you the information specific that you want to know about. Interested in communication, aesthetics and orthodontics? Same. Update your alert settings now. Take your CPD to the next level with cpdjunkie.com.au. And a question that came in from one of our listeners when I said that we were interviewing you today, and I think it fits quite well in this point here, because we've been talking about the treatment planning template that you have mastered and has taken many years to develop. And like you said, has been approved by lawyers, been approved by the ADA, and it's what you follow. But the question from the, one of our listeners was, what are the most common or biggest mistakes or pitfalls that you see other new graduates make when it comes to treatment planning? Um, I think the biggest problem, Erica, is focusing on the tooth that came in the door with the patient. <clears throat> and what I mean by that is Mrs. X breaks an upper five. Um, and we either patch the five, there might be an amalgam that's in that. Um, we do a, a slot, um, we patch it with composite and we discharge them. Now, what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be looking, why did it fracture? What are the signs and symptoms that show me that? If I've got someone who's fractured an upper five, I want to have an immediate look at what the upper canine is. Why am I jumping to the canine? Because if the canine has got incisal wear, 
as the lateral guidance has been lost on the canine, the fore becomes engaged. There will be a mark on the fore. And there's every chance that the buccal cusp that was lost on the five also had a wear mark. So if we focus on the five and we don't look at the bigger picture from 20,000 feet, Mrs. X is going to break another tooth. And my point was earlier, if it's an emergency situation, patch the five. It is not permanent. It's to enable us to bring the patient back to do a full and thorough data collection process. Her problems are sitting there looking at you, but you don't know how to recognize them. And so we need to buy the time to do that. If Mrs. X comes in with a broken upper five and we don't look around and look at the gum infection problem and potential perio pockets, all we've done is patch the five. So young grads focus on the presenting complaint and not on how the oral health with the presenting complaint inside it needs to be managed. And I think that the, the biggest problem that underpins this, Erica, is fear of rejection. If the young dentist says to the patient, Mrs. X, I can see the issue and it is part of the bigger problem, but I'm not going to be dealing with the bigger problem today, but I would like you to come back and sit down and discuss with me or discuss with you these other issues so that this doesn't happen again, then we're not focusing on the presenting problem. But what I've done in that situation, Erica, is I have immediately assumed that the young grad clinician has the ability to switch up to director personality style. Now, that's a false assumption in a lot of cases. So what I'm suggesting in that situation is grab the photograph of the problem area, quickly grab four other photographs, review the presenting photograph with them, and once you've said this is what you're going to do today, it's a temporary fix. Quickly show them the other four quadrants and say to them, we need to sit down and discuss other issues because this is going to happen in other teeth. And if we only focus on this today, I'm not treating your gum infection. I'm not treating the heavily filled teeth. I'm not treating the grinding problem that's led to this issue. It's very easy to do that with photographs and a couple of words rather than the intimidation of being able to talk about all the issues that are there. Another thing that happens, and I think you need to be very, very careful, we need to be careful with this with our young grads. When you spend time observing a mentor about how they talk to a patient and treat a patient, do not try to mirror that person. Do not try to use their words and try to throw them into context that you feel is appropriate. You are you. You're different to the mentor. Understand what underpins communication. Start to develop your skills in that area. Read about it. We can provide the resources. But don't try to use inappropriate wording that one person can get away with. It's like some of my associates try to copy me. I've done this for a long time. I have an innateness on reading people. I have obviously some very high skills in rehab and rebuilding and cosmetics. I can't just inject that into a young associate. So they need to see that there is a pathway to learn these things. Take their time, walk slowly. At the end of the day, in a one to three to five year period, you will achieve a point where you'll look back and go, my God, this is so much easier and I'm enjoying my dentistry so much more. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, when you mentioned the, that fear of rejection, I think that's something that 
many of us as new grads struggle with. And in particular, I think the finance side is something that stresses many of us out because in dental school, we've never had to talk about finance before and we've never really been rejected by our patients. But that's something that I guess is very daunting for us stepping out and working into private practice. What are your thoughts about talking about money from that point of view and managing patients who have financial constraints or have very, are very opinionated about that? Um, if I can just backpedal a second, um, Erica, um, the fear of rejection is is alive in all of us. And, and obviously, the younger you are, probably the rejection that you felt is in a relationship situation um, and the pain and the emotive hurt that exists there. The same thing flows through to a patient rejecting um, a dentist or the dentist believing, the undergraduate believing. If I tell them all of the things that are in their mouth, they're probably A, going to be blown away by it, B, not believe me because they've never met me before, and C, they're going to go down the road and find someone to fix the tooth. Okay? So we've got to back off away of that and, and recognise that, yes, fear of rejection is probably one of the driving forces as to why we don't make, I guess, recommendations of the other things that are there. So that's why my point is don't tell them everything that's happening first visit. Show some pictures, sow the seeds, Bring the patient back, having dressed the first situation, presenting complaint in a temporary way. So in that situation, um, I adopt what's called a financial loss leader. Um, I could um, I could anaesthetize the upper five that's fractured and do a foundation core, which in my practice might be $350 to $400, and it's going to be the foundation for a crown. I've not had a chance to spend time on the patient building the value drivers related to what I do. They go out to the front, they get the bill, and they go, oh, my God, I've never spent that much money on a tooth before. I'm not coming back here again. For a rejection comes in. Or we say, okay, I've taken an X-ray. I've seen if there's a VRF in there, vertical root fracture. There's no endodontic problem. I'm going to put a patch on it. I can do some simple bond, universal bond, flowable composite, whatever it is. And I might charge $80 for that and $80 for the x-ray and not charge for the exam because really I haven't done an exam. I'm going to bring them back for the exam. So there's $160 as compared to the $320. Now, I'm not trying to be nice guy. I recognize I've not had a chance to actually speak to the patient about the financial side of things. So I'd say, Mrs. X, I'm patching this today and your fee will be made up of an x-ray and the patch. I'd like you to come back and go through a full and thorough examination. My fee for that will be X. In my practice, it's a loss leader. It's $220, OPG, full photographs, full series of x-rays. And then my treatment plan comes in. So I don't compromise on that pathway. I use the emergency situation as a way to get them into, I'm, I'm going to come back for a new patient exam. Now, there's an exception. If I've got an endodontic problem that's about to blow, or is blowing, and my open and drain fee is $450. Do I numb them up, put rubber dam on, open and drain, dress it, take an hour out of my schedule, which wasn't planned, um, run behind for the next patient who's expecting me to be on time because I'm doing some veneers for them, um, or do I adjust the occlusion, put them on antibiotics and bring them back or refer them to endo and have reception advise them what the cost is going to be at the front of the next visit? For me, I send them all to endo. We don't do root canal in that practice. So my endodontic colleagues, um, because I've worked with them for so long, will see the patient that day or within 24 hours. 
again, the message is work with your specialists, work with your ceramists, build the relationships. Those relationships will help you through many dire situations that you may have, whether it's of your own doing or others doing. So financially, we're getting the patient to a point where they understand the bigger picture. In showing them all of the issues in their mouth, we ask them what they would like to do. Some, it might be fix the tooth. Okay, well, the fee is this. You can do a composite rebuild. That's the 450 whatever. You can do an inlay onlay. You can do a rebuild of the tooth. But let them know there are other issues there as well, and they can decide. And then from that treatment planning session, we're guiding reception on what the patient wants to do. Now, what tends to happen is that some patients will just want to fix that tooth. And now the fee that you're going to quote for it is going to be accepted far better than if they just walked out from the emergency visit and were given the fee for $350 to $450. So that's how we do it. We provide value drivers attached to the treatment that we do. But we use the case presentation visit to find out what it is the patient wants to do. And many of them come back a year or two later, having accepted the treatment plan and saying, okay, I've done my hygiene. It's stable. I'm seen on a three, four or six monthly basis. Again, little tip, we don't see patients on 12 monthly. We do not see patients six monthly. We see three and four monthly with any perioactive sites and six monthly probably for kids. And we don't really treat a lot of kids in that practice. It's, we're not a pediatric practice. So most of our hygiene is done on a three, four monthly basis unless they have an impeccable mouth no issues whatsoever, they go on six monthly. Does that help the financial side? It's creating value drivers attached to the treatment recommendations you're making. Definitely, and not overwhelming them all in that very first appointment because like you were saying, it's so important about building that relationship and that trust and just adding value to it and not bombarding them exactly. all and getting overwhelmed. Building the relationship, creating communication underpins the trust development Um, the credibility that's there, and then they're going to be accepting it. They're then able to make the decisions themselves on what it is that they want to embark upon. Dr. Rogers, this has been a fantastic chat. And I have one last question or one last topic to ask you about before we wrap things up. And it was when you were mentioning before about the, 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 the lifetime or the, the, the stages in life of a dentist and you mentioned before that it does take time as a new grad and takes us several years to get to a point where we've got our, our work process and we've got our workflow but have you got more thoughts on those stages of a dental practitioner and how does that relate to you personally when you were a new grad and then 10 years out and 20 years out and then where you are today what are those different stages and do your priorities change okay so let me give you two views on on this i'm I'm going to break down a dental practice into um, probably five stages The sort of patients that come in, they can be an emergency patient. Pretty simple. We know how to manage that. There might be a reactive patient. They are fearful. They've got low perception of the value of dentistry. They're coming in for broken tooth. We've got proactive patients who come in for preventative care and everyday management and care. They're in the habit from childhood of having gone to the dentist. Their parents recommended that they do it, and they know it needs to be maintained. There is the discretionary patient um, who are very much appearance focused and I want to look after my mouth in the long term. And there is the regenerative patient 
who I want as good as it gets. What What's available? What can I do to aesthetically, functionally look after my mouth? So that's our patient group. I'm, I'm guessing that probably a lot of your um, associates that, that are out there listening would see emergency reactive and some proactive. They don't really get to see too many discretionary and regenerative patients. Okay, second step. Maslow talked about the hierarchy of needs of the human being. I'm going to talk about a, a modification of Maslow's hierarchy of needs of, of, of dentists and where they go in their life. So your, um, your listeners are probably of two types. One, they will stay in the practice, or three types, let's say. One, they'll stay in the practice where they are. Two, they'll go to a corporate situation. They'll go and work in a corporate one. Or three, the ones that want to have their own practice. And they're all slightly different, but they still have a similar hierarchy of needs. Whichever way they go, first level of hierarchy is the patients and the facility. We want to look after the patients. We want to be caring. We want to be loved. We don't want fear of rejection. And we want to make sure that our facility is the best presentation for the patient. Second one is money issues. How do we deal with money issues? How do we, how do we counsel patients on the cost of dentistry that the patient wants to have? And if the patient advises us in that case presentation that I want to move this pathway, then they're more accepting of the cost of that. They're going to work on their staff and their patients and start to raise the standard of their staff so that that complements what the dentist wants to offer, whether they're working in an existing clinic, in a corporate clinic, where a lot of that is potentially taken care of for them, or whether they want to own their own practices. And, and for some, you know, great schoolmates, university mates might say two or three of them together, let's go buy a practice. And so this philosophy underpins all of this. They then start to move in the hierarchy of needs towards themselves and others. Do I have quality of life? Am I happy with what I do in dentistry, out of dentistry? Family needs, am I around for my kids? Does my partner have their needs satisfied by my availability of time and financial cost? And their loved ones around them. I guess in my situation, I'm at this point now and, and to, to some degree living your dreams as well that my son who lives in New York is taken care of. He looks after himself, but trying to engage with him, COVID has been difficult. It's kept us apart. And how do we satisfy those criteria? So you, you reach this stage of your practice where the practice is going well, you have good associates, it's moving along nicely. You might say, I'm, I'm going to work Monday to Thursday. I'm going to have Friday, Saturday, Sunday off. I'm having a three-day weekend. I want to be with my family. I want to do things. And then I think the highest level is living all your dreams. And, and one of the big questions here, and this is going to be 15 to 20 years down the line, for your listeners is, does dentistry satisfy my ability to live my dreams? Have I used it as just a financial way to underpin that? Or do I not like dentistry anymore because this is demanding and I've missed the boat in terms of skills and whatever and I haven't hired people that complement my skills or lack of skills? Am I going to continue in dentistry? Or have I made good investments over the years that my financial um, investments are going to look after me and I'm going to become um, the principal of the practice and have others work for me? So the, these are the, the general hierarchy of needs. And, and I guess if I could sort of put all of those pieces together now is that the, the skilled clinicians that, that we need to have, um, and, and it's difficult to sort of talk about this at the moment for your grads because they're not at this point I'm going to mention. 
um, for someone who's been out 10 years, setting a vision that complements your planned lifestyle and dreams is relevant to that point. Your young grads are not at this point at the stage. So for them, it's going to be, how do I communicate to a patient? We talked about personality profiling, photography, treatment planning, case presentation, engage the patient, find out what they want. My clinical skills, how do I treatment plan? How do I see what's needed? How do I understand occlusion? How do I understand adhesion? Um, How do I manage putting pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together? How do I rebuild a mouth? especially those over sort of 40, 50 years of age. We're not talking trauma cases here. That's mostly handled by hospitals. But how do we actually manage the complex multidisciplinary case? The simple answer to that is get used to working with your specialty team. Sit down with them. Bring them together once every three months and put your pictures up and say, guys, I need guidance here. Help me understand how to do this sort of work. And when you've got that team, don't fear that you're sending out dentistry to people that you should be doing yourself. We would send out close to a million dollars a year to specialists. And I think it's the best thing I can possibly do because my patients are getting the best possible care. And it's not that they're going to go elsewhere because I've sent them out. They come back to me because they appreciate and respect the fact that I work in a specialty team. With your communication skills, not just with the patients, but also with the staff, learn, understand what you are about in terms of your skill sets as a communicator. If I have weaknesses there, what is it? Am I a thinker? Am I a director? Do I not relate well to relators or socialisers? Build the team around the people that can do that. Develop your leadership and management skills. And they're two different things. Management is doing the delegated duties and roles and making sure that's done with delegation. Leadership is where vision comes in and we set a course and a dream and we head towards that and we take our team with us. So there's so many you know, different little pieces here and, and I, don't want to, I don't want to leave this podcast today, Erica, with the <clears throat> young grads and associates thinking, oh my God, this is just too huge for me. It's a lifetime journey. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day. But start to think about the dentistry that you like to do. Start to build skills in that area there. If you are in the practice where that can happen, that's fantastic. If you're not in the practice where mentorship and clinical skills are provided to you, source, outsource that information from people such as our institute, our podcasts or whatever. Or if you're interested in going overseas, we can guide you to those sorts of areas. But build the skills. Accept the fact that it takes time to get there. Don't rush this. It's a wonderful, wonderful profession, and there are great people out there that can help you in it. I mean, the fact that you're doing these podcasts is absolutely wonderful. It gives access to you know, people such as myself and other specialists that are able to share the knowledge. And, and I really feel our role as a mentor at this stage of our practicing lives, we've been very fortunate, I certainly have, to, to work with wonderful mentors around the world. And I believe it's my responsibility to give back in that sense. And that's why our institute is, is so crucial, I believe. For those of you that want information about it, go to the drinstitute.com.au. We've actually built, and I mentioned at the start of this, an associates program where we're going to be going through all of these things in a hands-on fashion. We're just finishing off dates at the moment, but we'll do Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, and Perth 
and in a day take the young graduates through those starting steps. We also provide clinical training in front of mouth, back of mouth, sequencing, um, functional issues such as occlusion and all of those sorts of things. And we've got a wonderful faculty that does that. So if, if your um, listeners are interested in that, there are resources available for them to actually move forwards in that. So hopefully I've been in, able to sort of encapsulate the, 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 the timeline of all of these things that are out there. It isn't, as we said at the outset, graduating from dental school is the start of your license to learn. It's not the start of I can put the books away and everything's fine. I love that so much. And I think the final takeaway that I got from what you were saying and about, you know, liaising with your specialists and seeking help from your mentors comes back to that idea that we hear a lot about a rising tide raises all ships. And I really feel like that really encapsulates our conversation today about sharing that knowledge and you know, embracing everything and working all together. And so thank you so much, Dr. Rogers, for joining us today on this podcast and sharing all your knowledge. And we'll definitely, you know, link all your resources and dates for further conversations and lectures that you host, like in our show notes and on our social media posts for all our listeners to join in. But thank you so much again for having this chat. Thanks so much, Erica. Really appreciate your commitment to doing this. And I wish um, a great journey for all of your listeners as well. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. The more you learn about orthodontics, the more you see it applying to almost every case. It might not always be necessary, but it's almost always an option. So then you think, I want to do aligners for my patients. And your challenge is to learn how to do that to a high standard. But once you've learned that, many people find that the challenge then is how do you actually make that work within your practice? How do you make this efficient and therefore profitable enough for you to be able to provide that to your patients in private practice? There's two people I think about when I think about aligners and then practice management. That's Dr. Jeff Hall and Dr. Jesse Green. And now they've come together to create Clear Aligner Excellence, their new education platform that is aiming to solve both of these problems for you in your practice while also giving you huge discounts off the major aligner therapy companies. Over the next six years, aligner therapy is forecast to increase by 28%. This is a huge opportunity. Take it with both hands, clearex.com.au. Thank you so much for listening to the Dental Head Start podcast. I genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist. So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com start to find everything we're doing to help dental students become great dentists.